We are in Matthew 14. Uh, last week, we looked at the first of two world-famous miracles, if, if we can use that term. And last week, we saw Jesus take a little basket of food from a small boy and, and bless it and multiply it and feed thousands of people. Today, we're going to look at the second miracle he performed in Matthew 14, which is very different in its scope and setting. The second miracle we're going to look at today is not out in the open in front of a big crowd. Jesus did this miracle in the dark for just his disciples. Two very different settings, but the same message. Same message. And that message is he was proving his deity. Jesus was proving he is God. And for you and I, he is proving that whatever, whatever comes into our life, we can trust his love and his power in that situation. Last week we saw what Jesus did with five small loaves and two fish. Today we're going to see what Jesus does with just three little words. First, please join me in, in prayer. Dear Father, we, we thank you for beautiful Sunday mornings, Southern California. It's hard to imagine a better place. Father, I thank you for everyone here today. May you just bless, bless them, bless us all. Father, as we open our Bibles now, that's sort of the easy part, just opening the Bible. We pray for something more special than that. We pray you would open our minds, open our hearts, our eyes to see, see you in a new way, hear things we've never heard before, and, and trust you, Father, because you are so trustworthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 14 might be the most clear picture of what our life is like that you will find in the Bible. And by what our life is like, I mean the grind, the daily grind. You know about the daily grind? You know about that? Well, so does the Lord. I think Matthew 14, we're going to see what is that grind all about and what difference really does Jesus make in the day-by-day, minute-by-minute stuff that we all have to deal with. If you haven't done so, uh, open your Bible to Matthew 14. I actually want to start uh, at verse 15, because I want to read the miracle we studied last week. We won't make any more comments on this, but I want to read last week's miracle, because we need it to set the stage for today. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 15, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. What an amazing event. Last Saturday and Sunday, many of you came up and told me what you learned from this passage in God's Word. And I was with you. I learned so much studying that. But the disciples were there. 
The disciples were eyewitnesses. They saw the food in the basket. They saw Jesus multiply that food and pass it out to as many as 20,000 people. They were there. What do you think they got out of it? What do you think they learned? The Bible actually tells us what they learned. Do you know what they learned? Nothing. (laughs) They learned nothing. They didn't understand it. We're going to turn to that passage a little later. But you're going to see. They saw food. They saw multiplication. They saw masses and multitudes. And they saw Jesus the man. But they did not understand what they were looking at. You know, I was thinking some more this week. I couldn't help it about that food Jesus created out of that basket. And here's what I, okay, last week we saw this is Jesus in his first year of ministry. Jesus' first ever ministry, uh, miracle, was when he went to a wedding celebration. You know that story? He went to Cana and, and the, the wedding ran out of wine. So Jesus, the servants came to him and, and Jesus said, go fill six stone water jars full of water. And these were not like little jars. These were 20 to 30 gallon party kegs. <laughs> they were big. And, and then Jesus said, dip in and take, take the water to the master of ceremonies. The master of ceremonies, we would probably call today the ward, wedding coordinator. And when, when he tasted the wine, he had no idea where the wine came from. The disciples, the, the, the servants knew, but he didn't know. And he, remember the story, he tastes the wine, he immediately goes to the host, who is the bridegroom, and he goes, you know what, everybody knows you always serve the best wine first. But you, you've saved the best wine for last. Remember that story? So that got me thinking. In an instant, if Jesus could make such exceptional wine, what did that bread and fish taste like? I bet that was the best meal they've ever had. I bet you today it would be a thing like Chef Ramsay and in one of his gourmet restaurants would charge $50 a plate for that. The Bible doesn't, I'm, I'm speculating, the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't give us the Lord's recipe. It doesn't even tell us how it tastes, but it does tell us that everybody ate until they were full. That sounds like they enjoyed it to me. So Jesus created the greatest picnic, the greatest outdoor banquet in history. Everything was going great. But look what happens next. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Gosh, talk about an abrupt left turn. The instant everybody was fed and happy, they collected the leftovers, and then Jesus immediately told the disciples, shove off, go. This word made means he compelled them. He insisted, you get in the boat, you go right now. What is going on there? Why give the disciples the bums rush? No after-dinner pleasantries? No sitting around a campfire singing, what, kumbaya or whatever you sing around a fire? No, for the disciples it was just make like a tree and leave. Make like a banana and split. Make like a drum and beat it. (laughs) I got some more. (laughs) Make like a bee and buzz off. Make like stockings and run. Make like a nut and bolt. That was for you, Mickey. Nut and bolt. That's a carpenter. Never mind. So why did Jesus act like that? 
Matthew doesn't tell us why, but we might get a clue, a very good clue in John. If you keep your place in Matthew and turn to John chapter 6, because John takes us behind the scenes and he gives us insight into what the crowd was thinking and what Jesus knew the crowd was thinking. John 6, 14 to 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, meaning the miracle of feeding the 5,000, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain to pray by himself. Jesus made quite an impression on this crowd. Not only did he spend all day healing their sick, but he made food appear out of nowhere. This is a direct tie to what God did for the children of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. Remember he made manna from heaven appear? These people knew that. They saw who Jesus was. They wanted to make him king right here, right there, and right now. But Jesus didn't come to sit on a throne. He came to be nailed to a cross. He will return. Jesus will return. And when he does, he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. But this time, he was the humble servant coming to die for your sins and my sins. Now the fact that Jesus made the disciples get out of there so quickly makes me wonder if the disciples were getting caught up in the crowd's reaction. The Bible doesn't tell us this, so I'm just speculating. But we know from places in Scripture that the disciples are rather an excitable bunch. Maybe Jesus could see that they were going along with the crowd or Jesus knew they would go along with the crowd if they stayed. So he immediately put them in a boat and told them to shove off without him. I wonder how many times the Lord has shown you and me that wonderful mercy of not letting us stay somewhere or go somewhere that would be harmful for us. We would have no way of knowing that. But how many times does God intercede for us? I'd like to say I've learned this lesson, but sometimes I forget that I've learned it. But here's the lesson that I wish I always remembered. If I pray and I say, Lord, please give me this or let me stay here or let me go here. And he says, no, I should be so grateful for that. Because if he doesn't want me to have it, then I don't want to have it. Not if I really trust his perfect plan and his love for me. So Jesus sent the disciples away for their own good. Then he stayed alone to dismiss this crowd. Remember, this was a large group of people, 5,000 men plus women and children. We've numbered that crowd to be around 15,000, 20,000 people. That's like the Staples Center. It's a big crowd. He faced them alone. Remember, they wanted to make him king by force. This was not a submissive little group. This was a, a mob about to riot. But Jesus dismissed them and they went home without further incident. Wouldn't you love to know what he said or did that made those people suddenly just go home and, and, and stop wanting to make him king? Several years ago, Joni and I and my mom and my stepfather went to a Dodger baseball game at nighttime, nighttime game, years ago. And when he got out of the game, we were driving home and they started to detour us because this was during the Rodney King incident. And the the riots were happening down at Parker Center in L.A. And they happened to route us right through Parker Center. I had my little gray minivan. 
and they're and I'm off on the streets now, going through dark streets because all the street lights were out, and all the shops were closed, their lights were out, and the police were directing us, and they were taking this group this way, and then he turned for me, and so I, I he made me turn left, so I turned left down this dark street. We were alone on that street, and all I could see coming toward us was a the street was full of people heading our way. They were all sil- they were dark and silhouetted by all the fires they had set. They had trash cans on fire, palm trees were on fire, bales of uh, newspaper on fire. They even set fire to a phone booth, and I have no idea how you set fire to a phone booth, but they did. And here they were coming. I think Joni from the back seat said, "Gee, I, I really liked being in your family." It was a scary situation. So I floored it. I stepped on the gas, and with that little minivan, that just meant. The engine got louder, but we didn't go any faster. <laughs> but I floored it, and I went down an alley, and then they were directing us to go this way. I turned the wrong way on a one-way street because I could see a freeway on-ramp I wanted to get to. So we got out. But it made me think, if I had pulled up my little Chrysler minivan and got out and faced that mob, do you think I could have dismissed them, sent them home like Jesus did? So here's the question I've been asking myself all week, and I want to ask you. Jesus had the power to feed the crowd. And he had the power to dismiss the crowd. Which one is the greater miracle? The loaves and fish get all the attention for very good reason. But him sending the crowd away is also very important. If he hadn't sent that crowd away, they would have made him king and he would have never gone to the cross to die for their sins and die for our sins. They would have had their king, but we would have lost our savior. Back to Matthew 14, uh, verse 23. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Let me stop there because I want to remind us. This is the, remember from last week, this is the entire reason Jesus came to this remote place to begin with. He came here to get away from the crowd so he could spend quiet time with his father to pray. All through his ministry, Jesus spent so many hours just alone with God. Jesus loved a discipline called solitude. I love solitude as well. What is solitude? Solitude is taking a break from all of our busyness and all of the distractions that are around us all the time. It's unplugging. You just unplug yourself from the world you're in for a set period of time so you can give all of your attention to God. In that, It could be a long time or a short time. But you're alone. When we get alone with God on a regular basis, we notice, you'll notice something. Your relationship with God deepens. It becomes strong and personal not sort of shallow and inconsistent. When I travel for work, I really don't like travel. But my favorite thing to do when I travel is get to the hotel room and and shut the door and have quiet time with God. I feel unplugged there. Nobody, you know, it's I'm away from everybody, it's quiet. I like to pray. I like to read my Bible. Personal preference, I like to kneel when I'm alone. When I was younger, I used to just drop to my knees. It's now a little bit more of a process for me. Um, I usually need a sturdy chair or a table, some leverage to get down, and, and a pillow or two for my knees. But solitude, spending time alone with God, changes your whole relationship. Let's read on in uh, verses 23 and 24. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat, that's the boat with the disciples in it, 
was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. While Jesus was praying on land, his disciples were out there in the middle of that sea, rowing and straining and struggling against strong wind and waves. Very slow going. Isn't this a clear picture of how life gets for us? Maybe sometimes, maybe most of the time, maybe all the time. Do you ever feel like the winds are against you? Nothing comes easy. Everything's a hassle. And you find yourself just rowing and rowing, struggling and straining, not making much progress, just wearing yourself out. The disciples were out there before dawn. It was dark. It was dark. That has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? You ever feel like you're in the dark? Things happen and you think to yourself, why did this happen? Why did that happen? How did I get here? Where am I going? What am I doing? Jesus was praying while they were rowing and struggling against the wind. He was watching them. That's nice. He had his eyes on them. Why didn't he help them? Why didn't he make the wind stop? Or redirect the wind to give them a favorable wind so they could hoist sail and just get to their destination. Let's read on because I think we'll see that Jesus was helping them. He was helping them by leaving them in the storm for just a little while longer. Verses 25 to 26. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. This takes place on the Sea of Galilee, which is often called a lake in the New Testament, because if you've seen the Sea of Galilee, it's not all that big. But here we have two contrasting experiences, right? Same, same storm, same body of water. The disciples were getting knocked around. They were struggling and stressing and pushing and shoving against the waves and wind. Jesus, he was out for a stroll. Keep your place in, in, in Matthew. And let's turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 47 to 49, because Mark includes one more detail that I told you about last week that to me, let's see if you think this, makes this the funniest scene probably in the whole Bible, at least in the New Testament. Mark 6, 47 to 49. Our Lord has a wonderful sense of humor, but in the humor, he's teaching us something. Mark 6, 47 to 49. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the lake and thought he was a ghost. That's a funny comedy bit. They're out there rowing for all they've got, all these men rowing, and Jesus can pass them on foot. So that's how slow they're going. And he was just going to walk right on by like he didn't even see them if they didn't say something. And here's the question that we discussed last night after church. Do you think Jesus would have kept going had they not said anything? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I think so. It says he was was about to pass them. And here's the message for you and I. When we're in a storm, Jesus is right there, but he will pass by if we don't ask him to help. Let's try to picture this, okay? 
We know four of the disciples in that boat were professional fishermen. They knew how to row. We're also certain that the other disciples grew up in that area, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure those people also knew how to be on, on the lake or on the Sea of Galilee. They knew their way around that place and on that boat. So they were professional rowers. They were doing everything they could. But it was cold. It was wet. It was dark. They had wind stinging their face. They had salt water burning their eyes. Their ship was creaking. Their muscles were aching. And just when they thought it couldn't get any worse, a ghost shows up. Or so they thought. Another picture of our life, isn't it? When we're really struggling and we think it can't get any worse, what usually happens? One more bad phone call? One more bill in the mail? One more medical report? Whatever it is, the key is it's bad. It's one more piece of bad news that makes us want to scream, just like the disciples did. When they saw Jesus coming across the water, they saw a shape, and they thought he was a ghost. Again, I relate with this, fear of the unknown. When we see something coming and we don't know what it is, what's our first reaction usually? Our normal reaction is, well, I don't know what it is, so I'll be scared of it. Be frightened. Fear of the unknown. The disciples were tired and afraid. I think this is how some people go their whole life. They spend their whole life being tired and afraid. I don't like to be tired. It wears me out. And I hate to be afraid. It scares me. Somebody once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and spiders. Someone else said, in the modern world today, there are only three kinds of fear. Terror, panic, and forgetting your password. (laughs) The disciples thought Jesus was a goat. Not a goat, a ghost. (laughs) A goat would not have been scary. A goat would have been cute. Thought he was a ghost and they were terrified. Here's an obvious but really important question. Was Jesus a ghost? No. But... He looked like a ghost to them. He wasn't a ghost. He was their savior. He was their rescue. But in their current condition, they couldn't see that. How often does the Lord send us something in our life and we don't know what it is, so we're immediately afraid of it? Treat it like a ghost. We're terrified. It's really the Lord coming to our rescue. The disciples cried out in fear, and I bet... They looked pretty stupid. So Jesus just kept right on walking, said, what a bunch of losers, and walked to shore. Is that what happened? Let's look what happened. Verse 27. They cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. There's this word immediately we keep coming across in this passage. When the disciples cried out in fear, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Do you see? But this is teaching us. This is a game changer. This is a life changer. Do you see what Jesus is offering us? When we're afraid and we cry out, Jesus offers us a trade right there immediately. He trades us himself for our fears. He says, I know you're afraid. 
but I'm right here. I've got this. I've got you. Don't be afraid. Look what happens next. Verse 28, 29. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Look at that. What a transformation. A second ago, Peter was cowering in the boat with everybody else. It's a ghost. He was hiding. He was down. He was wet. And he was tired and straining. All of a sudden now, he hears the Lord's voice. He jumps up and he's striding across the water. wonder what that felt like. Would that be like walking on a waterbed? What did that feel like? Did you notice? All the disciples cried out in fear and Jesus answered all of them. But only Peter heard and only Peter believed and only Peter went for a walk. All the other disciples could have piled out of that boat and gone charging across the water like that opening scene to chariots of fire. They stayed in the boat. Only Peter had the faith to get out of that boat. Faith, we see, is not some weak, hopeful, little metaphysical feeling. It is strong, vigorous confidence in the love and power of the Lord. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, that actually means should be translated, since it is you, because it is you, Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. Peter was no longer worried about the wind and the waves and ghosts. All Peter wanted to do was come to Jesus, be with Jesus, and be like Jesus. I can't think of a better way to go through life. Come to Jesus, be with Jesus, and want to be like Jesus. Peter said, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. Peter also understood something that we saw last week. With the Lord's command comes his power. He never commands us or calls us to do something where he doesn't give us the power to do it. Jesus answered Peter with one word, come. Don't you admire the Lord's economy with words? Don't you wish I had that gift? Peter was a professional fisherman. He read the fisherman's manual. The manual says people can't walk on water. He knew that, but he saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he saw a new reality. Same reality you and I can see. With Christ, all things are possible. All things. All things. I I hate saying that sometimes because that can sound cliche or sound like a, a slogan. It's the truth. With his eyes on Jesus, Peter had a new experience. Did you notice here? The wind didn't stop. The waves didn't stop. The situation didn't change one bit. The only thing that changed was Peter. With his eyes on Jesus, he saw this new reality and he could do what he could never do before. And you know what else he shows us? In a storm... The best place to go is toward Jesus. Look at the contrast between Peter and his buddies. I mean, where were those guys? Where were his disciples? They're still in the boat, getting pushed around by the wind and waves, while Peter was out for a walk with the Lord. 
Sometimes, maybe most of the time, the majority is not right. The majority was in the boat. Only Peter was crazy enough to step out in faith and trust the Lord. Let's look at verse um, 29 to 30. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Peter started off great. But then he got afraid again. And if you know anything about Peter from other places in Scripture, this is sort of his MO. This is how he does things. He starts out big and kind of fizzles out. But I really, I can't blame him for this. He stepped out of that boat. He still felt that strong wind smacking him in the face, blowing his hair, blowing his clothes. He could still see the rising waves. Have you ever been to the beach on a really, really windy day and the white caps are coming and the, and the wind is blowing so hard it's blowing the foam right off the top of the white caps? That's probably what Peter saw happening. So he did what I would have done, I think. Maybe you would have done. He took his eyes off of Jesus at that moment to, to look around. And when he stopped walking by faith, his fear returned and he started to sink. Faith in Jesus lets us do the impossible, things we never thought we could do. Fear makes us sink. You know what this reminded me of? It reminded me of the first time Pastor John asked me to preach a message at this church. It was the first time I preached a message at any church. It was about two years ago. Um, All week, I had a week's notice, and I studied, and I prayed. I prayed, and I studied, and I prayed some more. On the Saturday night, first night ever, presented a message. We were still meeting in the little church up in uptown Yorba Linda. You were there. And I, I remember getting there. I was pretty nervous, but I, I really prayed. And I felt, a, I felt a calm. I felt a strength that I knew wasn't coming from in me. And if you remember that little church, it was a tiny little church. That's what made it so cute. Uh, I walked, when it was time for me to teach, I, I came walking up the aisle, and I swear somebody was stretching that church. That walkway took forever. Walk it, and this thing kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger looking as I walked toward it. And I remember getting there and, and, and turning around and facing everybody. And you were smiling like you are now. And I was okay. I really was okay. And I started to teach. I welcomed everybody and I was teaching and I was, I was doing fine. I was. Then all of a sudden it hit me. Gosh, everybody's looking at me. <laughs> Actually, not everybody. A few people were asleep already. <laughs> I was grateful for those people. <laughs> Gosh, everybody's looking at me. And in that moment, I started to sink. I felt that confidence. I felt, the, I felt my strength just go right through my feet into the floor. I felt my stomach sink. And I prayed Peter's prayer. I don't think I said, Lord, save me. I really think I said one word. I think I said help. But I prayed. And I felt that strength return. Peter <laughs> made a mistake when he took his eyes off the Lord. But this brother knew how to pray. Verse 30, When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Three little words. He didn't even say amen. He didn't even make it a proper prayer with amen. If he had said amen, only the fish would have heard it. He would have, as he went under the water, Lord, save me. This prayer reminds me of another really special little prayer. If you can find, this is in the Old Testament. I'll read it to you. Or if you can find the book of Nehemiah. Ooh, Nehemiah, where is that? Nehemiah, Psalms is in the the middle of the Old Testament. The book of Nehemiah is three books before Psalms. 
If you can't find it, it's okay. Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a very interesting Jewish leader. This happened about 500 B.C. So this took place about 500 years before the story we're reading in Matthew 14. And Nehemiah uh, was part of, uh, was an Israelite. They'd been deported to Babylon, part of the Persian Empire, where Artaxerxes was the king. And he was very kind to the Jews. And uh, Nehemiah was his cupbearer, meaning he was like a bodyguard. He tasted the king's wine and food before he ate, so nobody could poison him. And he was a trusted member of the royal court. And part of his job description was always be happy in the presence of the king. But Nehemiah wasn't happy because he knew his, his home, his Jerusalem was in ruins. And he wanted to go and he would have been praying to rebuild the gates and the wall. And the Lord hadn't answered him yet, so he was sad. Let's read Nehemiah together because he one day could no longer hide his sorrow. Nehemiah 2, 1 to 6. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, just like Peter. I added that part, but he was just like Peter. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then look what happens next. Nehemiah says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors were buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him said, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. The king asked him a question. He didn't have time to, well, king, let's see. He didn't have a time to go out and consult his day planner and decide how to answer. When he asked him, you know, what do you want? He prayed. I bet you his prayer was no longer than mine. It was probably one word, help. And he answered the king, and the king answered that prayer. The Lord answers short prayers. Sometimes with prayer, we get, we get it confused. We think it's got to be some grandiose thing. It can be. There's nothing wrong with long prayers, but prayers can be short. The Lord hears short prayers. What happened to, to, to uh, our friend Peter when he prayed? Let's turn back to Matthew. Sorry for all the page turning today. It's exercise. Matthew 14:31. After Jesus prayed, Lord, save me. Immediately, there's that word immediately again. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Prayers, Peter's little prayer was answered immediately. And Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. His almighty hand. He caught Peter. Just like he catches you and me when we cry. We may not be sinking in water right now, but we could be sinking in debt or in doubt or worry or regret. We could be sinking in failure. We could be sinking in sin. We could be sinking in boredom, drudgery. Whatever we're sinking in, we can keep struggling and flailing or we can take that hand. Once Jesus had Peter firmly in his grasp, he said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? So why did Peter doubt? He was a fisherman. He'd been on this sea before. He's been in storms before. Yeah, he'd been in storms before, but not outside his boat walking on the water. He was literally a fish out of water. He was in very uncomfortable, unfamiliar, out of his comfort zone setting. Doesn't that make us doubt? 
Don't we get fearful when we find ourselves way out of our comfort zone? But here's the thing. Peter was in no danger. None at all. And neither are we when we're walking with the Lord. I wonder if this is what Peter was thinking later in Acts uh, 2.21 when, when he, he, he preached his first message to the people of Israel, or Ju- uh, Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost. And he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I wonder if this was on the back of his mind. You of little faith, why did you doubt? How many times has the Lord said those words to me? The passage shows us the problem with little faith. Little faith does not hold up well in the storm because little faith can't stay focused on Jesus for very long. But here is the wonderful, wonderful news about little faith. Little faith in Jesus is still true faith and Jesus immediately answers the prayers of little faith. Peter's prayer. What an effective prayer for every moment of our life. Lord, save me from from looking where I shouldn't look. Lord, save me from my bad attitude this morning. Lord, save me from answering this person before I really listen and hear the whole matter. Lord, save me from worrying about something I know you're handling. Lord, save me from my selfish attitude. Lord, save me from the bitterness I'm feeling from something that happened so long ago. Lord, save me. I'm tired and I'm afraid. Peter is the only one that got out of the boat. Look what happened when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat. Verses 32 to 34. When they, Peter and Jesus, climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Then when they crossed over, they landed at Genesaret. Finally, the disciples understood what Jesus had been trying to show them all along. He is the Son of God. Will you turn to Mark uh, 6, 51 to 52? This is the passage I told you about in the beginning that explains what, what the disciples did not understand, the miracle of the loaves and fish. And this is going to help us understand why they didn't see who Jesus was until now. Mark 6, 51 to 52. Then Jesus climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. The disciples were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The disciples, except for Peter, did not understand what Jesus did with the loaves and fish. They saw the food. They saw the miracle, but they, didn't, they saw a man doing it. They didn't see Jesus as the Son of God. And here on this lake, they suddenly started to realize Jesus is somebody quite different than they thought he was. Their heart had been hardened, meaning their misunderstanding, their lack of understanding kept blinding them to this experience of who Jesus is. In fact, by the way, this isn't the first time they've been on the lake, in this lake, in this sea, in a boat with Jesus in a storm. Um, And back in Matthew uh, 8, chapter 8, I'll just read it to you. This happened a few short time before our experience here in in, um, Matthew 14. Then he got in the boat with his, and the disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, Sea of Galilee, same place, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied again, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was immediately calm or completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, who, what kind of man is this that even the winds and waves obey him? 
Again, they kept looking at Jesus as a man, but here suddenly they saw he was the Son of God. What made the difference? Was it the miracle? Was it the repeat of the miracle? Or was it the miracle that Peter could do when he was walking with Jesus? Maybe seeing Peter. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it sure gives us a reminder. People are watching us as we go through our storms. And this is not teaching us we should just put on a happy smile and pretend everything's okay. Not at all. It's teaching us that as we learn to trust Christ in our storms, we will be transformed. And people will see that change in us. And they could one day come to Christ because of it. And we also see the kind mercy of God. He just keeps revealing himself and proving himself to us over and over again because we need lots of evidence and we need lots of reminders. But we just never know when we've had our last one. When Jesus got in the boat, the winds died down. Why didn't he just do that to start with? Wouldn't that have saved a lot of time? Well, Jesus knew the disciples wouldn't come to trust him by getting to their destination. Jesus knew the only way that they would find him is in the storm. Let's finish the passage. It says, when they'd crossed over, they landed at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding people, a country. People brought their sick to him and begged him to let them just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. When, once the boat got to the other side, Jesus continued his ministry. And you know, this isn't the end of the miracle. In John's gospel, he includes one more little note. I'll read it to you. It says, A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when the disciples uh, had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him in the boat, and immediately, immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were headed. As soon as they took Jesus in a boat, in the boat immediately they got where they were going. Jesus proved his authority over weather, over physics, over time, over anything and everything that you and I face in our lives. He is God. He is the Son of God. Storms are going to come. That's a given. This is teaching us that Jesus is offering us a choice. Do we want to keep rowing and struggling on our own? Or do we want to walk with Jesus? Ushers, if you want to pass out, we're going to take communion in a few minutes. Um, This is a perfect passage to study before we take communion because here we are with Jesus in his first year of ministry. But now we're going to see Jesus in an upper room in his last year of ministry, his last night before he goes, went to the cross to die for our sins. And he's with these same guys, these same disciples, same ones that were in the boat, same ones that thought he was a ghost. Here he is with them one more time. And they're having their final meal together. And here Jesus gives us the sacrament of communion. Again, you know, the Lord knows we're physical beings. We need physical reminders. We need to be, be reminded often of what he has done for us. And that's what communion does. Thank you. It reminds us who he is and all that he has done for us. We are told in the Bible, in the Word of God, to take communion seriously. We need, it tells us to examine ourselves 
Because if we have sin in our life, we want to confess our sin before we take communion. And I'll give us a chance to do that in a minute. But we also are told to look at our attitude. We don't want to approach communion lightly. Remember, Jesus gave us this to remember what he did for us. So we don't want to turn this into a sort of a thoughtless religious exercise or a ritual. It is something personal. And it is something we do to celebrate what he has done. If you're here today and you don't, you've maybe never asked Jesus to save you. Or you're not sure if you have. Right where you're sitting, you can pray Peter's prayer. Lord, save me. And he will immediately. Or maybe in a group this size, I'm sure there's people here today that are sinking. If you're sinking in whatever storm you're in right now, you can pray that same prayer, Lord, save me. And immediately, he'll take hold of you. He will catch you with his almighty hand. You have sin, time to confess it. If, if you are just having the most blessed time, great time to praise him. We're going to take one minute of solitude. We talked about solitude. One minute. Let's see how we handle one minute. We'll start with one minute. Just hold on to the elements you have, and in a minute we'll come back and read one more passage of Scripture together and take communion together. So one minute. We have been reading in Matthew 14. I want to read to you now out of Matthew 26. On the last night before Jesus went to the cross to die for our sin. Again, we are told in Scripture that this is not just a story. This is something that really happened. And the Lord gave us this, this moment, what we're doing right now, to remember his body and his blood that were given up so you and I could have a hope. You and I can go through life not battling storms, but we can walk through storms because his power is in us and we can do the impossible because he died for us. In verse 26, in Matthew 26, Jesus said, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. 
Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Prayer team, if you want to come up, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, gracious Lord, how can we thank you for going to that cross? People wanted to make you king. You could have taken that easy way out. But you came to do the will of your Father. You came to die on that cross thousands of years ago because you knew everyone here needed you. We needed a Savior. And you love us so much, Father. You died for our sins. Father, I pray that nobody would leave here and stay in their storm, keep sinking. I pray everyone here would just cry out to you and take you by the hand and walk with you every day from this day forward. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.